2 Corinthians 8 tells three stories. The first is about the churches in Macedonia. It, it drips with grace and sacrifice and history and contrast. The second about our Lord Jesus Christ tells a story in one sentence. And the final story tugs at the hearts of the readers. The Lord's grace and faithfulness for 40 years through manna. The beginning verses that, that speak about God's grace among the churches in Macedonia. And remember, he's writing to the churches in, in Corinth. So if we think about the relationship between Macedonia and Corinth, there probably still is that memory that these sheep herders from the country, from the north, came down and overran their sophisticated city cousins in Corinth, in Athens, in Sparta. But now Corinth is one of the richest city-states in the Roman Empire. And the farmers and the sheep herders in Macedonia are poor. But yet the gospel has reached so much into their lives that they want to share with the poor in Jerusalem. They want to give. They want to give beyond what they are possibly capable of. And, and, you know, Paul might be worried, are you sure you can afford this? And they say, we want to give it to the Lord because of his grace. That the motive of stewardship in the Macedonian churches, and, and remember to hear that as churches, we're looking at not just one church, But they want to share in the ministry to the poor in Jerusalem. See, sometimes I think when we look and we hear names, we forget the contrast and the history that is tied between them. And so, yes, Paul is motivating them by saying, look what these poor country people are doing. Because of God's grace, because of God's joy, because they want to be generous, because God's grace has been generous in their lives. Beyond their means, of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I was thinking about you know, what would be the contrast in today's global church? It'd be like churches in India or rural Africa wanting to send money to the UK to take care of poor kids because of God's grace. That God's grace had shaped the way they looked at their money, they looked at their budgets and all the things, you know, the words we use that they probably wouldn't <clears throat> You know, can I go sell that extra sheep and get some money? Can I send my wool money? Can I do this or can I do that so that the poor people in Jerusalem will be fed? And then in verse 7, he turns to them after telling them this story and says, but... As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, 
in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Do you hear the words of Jesus from last week? We talked about doing your acts of righteousness in public, about giving to the needy. That stewardship is an act of grace, is an act of righteousness. And then he moves from the story about the churches in Macedonia. to what I think of as a one-sentence story. I started thinking about this five, seven years ago because there is a Facebook group that I follow called The One-Sentence Story, where people write stories in one sentence. Like, everything reminds me of you. Where tears are the words my heart uses to explain that even my fake smiles can't cover up my pain. <clears throat> now, this last Wednesday in our Bible study from Galatians, there was a one sentence. Remember here, one sentence, not one verse, because we know that, you know, it goes through the verses sometimes. In Galatians, Paul writes. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you hear how it's all wrapped up in one story in one sentence? You get this snapshot, you get this condensed idea So, verse 9, the one that that came and comforted that missionary in China in 1937 as he was going out to visit missionaries, some of whom disappeared, some of the Christians who disappeared. and, And I will stop before I read that verse. Because even now in China, I mean, think about it. They've been doing this since 1937. There are now over 350 million Christians in China. They have not learned that you cannot persecute Christians out of your nation. But listen to the verse that gave that missionary comfort. For you know the grace, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you hear that story in that one sentence? We go through the incarnation and he casts it in a way that's going to reflect in this passage. He was rich. He became poor, so that in his poverty, we might become rich. We are rich in his grace. And remember, again, I mean, you know, you know I tie things together. 
The last time we were talking about laying up treasures in heaven. The riches we have in Christ are what we lay up in heaven. Because they come from him. So the Lord Jesus Christ's voluntary poverty creates a church rich in grace. And that grace touches our giving to help other people. Because the gospel at times is put in economic terms when they use poor and when they use rich. And so what he's doing is he's saying, will you let Christ's example be your example? Will you say, I want to follow Christ? Will you follow him that way? See, I think today in our world, where economics and and caring for the poor have become what we speak of as weaponized on social media, that we need to let the word of God come and touch our hearts. We need to let the word of God and the example of Jesus Christ and of those poor Macedonians touch us. Because see, what we see here is he is not saying, you need to write a check for this amount. He is letting them use their gifts as an expression of God's grace. Remember what it says at the end of verse 6, so that he should complete among you this act of grace. See, that's why we have offerings in churches. Now, I... I have no quarrel with putting a box on the outside, people putting the money as they come in, not having it in. In America, we associate weekly offerings in terms of changing the liturgy when people you started working in factories and getting their money every week. Because, see, in a rural economy, when do you get money? When the harvest comes in. You don't get it every week. You get it when you take your lambs or your calves or whatever you're taking to market. That's when you get your money. You know, you look at the Old Testament and agricultural community and, and they would say, okay, you, you know, 10% of your apples, 10% of your wheat, 10% of your barley, 10% of your fish. But in America, and I, I have not looked into the history of how it happened here, that's when they began to use it. Because they would get paid every, in an envelope every, usually every Friday, and they would take the money and hopefully spend it on their family, not stop off at the local bar. That's a whole other story of America falling apart. But you see, we need to understand that grace that we have received expresses itself through the generosity to those who are in need. Look at verse 2 again. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you see how their joy of their salvation even in their poverty is generous. You see, that's, that's kind of what revival is, is when, when God's joy overcomes our circumstances. 
You see, for, for many of us, we are so used to being comfortable. I grew up with stories of my maternal grandfather's family in Brooklyn, New York. Now, by the time he was born in the late 1880s, their family was three generations into a fishing company. And I say company because it was not just one boat or two boats or three boats. These were boats that went all over the North Atlantic, went to Russia, other places. They helped start what became known as Fulton Fish Market, which is where all the ships came. And it no longer exists because you don't distribute fish the way they used to. But they had what were referred to as upstairs and downstairs help. It wasn't Downton Abbey. But I just remember him saying, oh, we had two or three people that would go upstairs and make the beds and clean and do this and that. Because there were upstairs people and then there were downstairs people who cooked and cleaned and did this and did that. He had summer vacations in the Adirondacks where he learned to fish and hunt. But he also went to a YMCA camp. And it was at that YMCA camp that he became a Christian and he wrote to his father to tell him that he had taken a public stand for Jesus Christ. And when he died and I was going through his Bible, I found this letter that nobody in the, in the family knew about. His father, in very formal turn of the century, going from the 1800s to the 1900s, expressed his formal affection and, and pride that his son had taken a step. And so, in our family, we look back and we think about that. Now, I think about my father's family in the Great Depression and how it was very different, how my father was out selling apples on the, on the corner and doing this and doing that. A real contrast. My grandfather on my mother's side, he was an engineer, worked for U.S. Steel. They worked every other week. And the banks did not charge them principal. You just paid the interest on your house loan. And so you have all these histories of, of your family that dealt with poverty, dealt with riches. You look at your own situation. You look at your children's situations. But yet, because of grace, it can take whatever your background is and express itself through generosity to those who are in need. Now, in verse 6, he urges Titus to finish what he started. The genuine love finishes meeting the needs of others to express equality. And I use the word equality even though the English Standard Version uses the word fairness because I think it is a, a better translation and you go back and you look at the discussion of people who were kind of there at the beginning of English translation into, from the Bible into English translations, that equality seems to be the historical view of how the word should be translated. But you see, when, when we look at this and we see the motivation is both love and grace, that it meets the necessity because of this idea 
of fairness and equality. He says in verse 11, so now finish doing it well, so that your readiness and desiring, in other words, he's saying you've got the desire that you may now complete what you have. And he wants, he reminds us that it's according to what we have, not what we don't have. So we've looked at the story about the Macedonians. We've looked at the one-sentence story about Christ. Though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that out of his poverty we might become rich. We come to the third story. And I didn't know whether to call this a, a story in a sentence or what, because what it does is it goes back and it creates a memory, which is often where our stories come from. Verse 15 And I think it's important that we we hear the first part of this. As it is written. In other words, he's going back and he's grabbing a passage of Scripture. And he's bringing it forward. Remember what we read earlier in the liturgy? About Christ? About Genesis 15, 6, it was counted to him, was written not only for him, but also for us that we need to realize that when we read the Old Testament, it was written for us as well as for them. It was written. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's from Exodus 16, verse 18. Daily they were given manna. You know, one of the stories, things about manna, when you look at it in context in Exodus is you see that they whine about God's provision. That God's going to give them something every day. But they want him to expand the menu, and so when he gives them the quail, you see that he's giving it to them in anger. He's upset with them. He says, I'm going to feed you quail, I'm going to give you meat. I mean, think about that, that every day for 40 years, God fed them. So when we hear the words in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread, it has this big memory of God's provision of his people for 40 years with manna. It is part of his covenant keeping to provide for them. Now John Calvin, the French-Swiss reformer, says that one of the things that Paul in bringing this to our attention. Because remember, you have the original audience, the people getting the manna. You have the Corinthians. And now you have us who are reading it. What Calvin says, I think, is very important. He says one of the things he's stressing is that everything we have is manna. Everything we have is given from God. Every daily provision is from God. It's all God's. Now, verses 13 and 14 are verses that need to haunt all of us. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that 
at their abundance, they may supply your need that there may be fairness or equality. And see, what we have to see in that is that God, through Paul, is not saying, I want you to give this amount. But he's saying, look at your abundance. Look at what you consider abundance. And, and oh, by the way, I told you about these poor people who are not abundant, but they're giving beyond their capability. So what he does is he makes stewardship a real heart matter, a real understanding of joy, grace, love, all the words that he uses in this passage. Now, I won't read you. I mean, if if you want to see a pastor who can really go after people's lifestyle, John Calvin just lays some of the people of his generation. He uses words that in the way they live, they defraud the poor. Calvin saw this as a real test of a community's grace that they would be taking care of each other. He says that no one should be allowed to starve, that no one should hoard his abundance at the expense of defrauding others. See, we all have to ask the question. See, I'm not going to come and look at your checkbook. I'm not going to look at your bank balances. But what we have to hear from this passage What's the difference between abundance and hoarding so that we don't share with those who are in real need? By using these simple words. Because from Calvin's perspective, and I think it's, it's biblical, the reason we are given abundance is so we can care for others. Not so we can live the rich and lavish lifestyle. Have the bling, the gold-plated Hondas, you know, all the things. I mean, when you look at some of the excesses that are available in our culture worldwide. People will have to stand before God and say, what did you do with your abundance? And that's why he reminds us. And, you know, the thing about... Hoarding manna was a sign either of greed or distrust. Because what happened at the end of the day with manna if you took too much? All your neighbors knew because it stunk. I mean, I was trying to think of the most smelly cheese that I've ever had and say it's worse than that because of your neighbors know. But notice what Calvin does, though. He says it's greed or distrust. Oh, I'm not greedy, but I'm not sure there's going to be enough for tomorrow. Can you imagine that he was disciplining his people day by day to trust him? You can't keep it till tomorrow. 
Now, we live in a completely different world, and after the 40 years, the manna went away, and you had a whole different system, and now here in Rome and Jerusalem and Macedonia, you've got a whole different way. See, God doesn't give us a checkbook, I mean a checklist for our checkbook. He wants us to look inside and say, do I have abundance that I need to be sharing with those who are in need? I put up something like this in a form for my seminary alumni, and this one guy just, bam, shot back. God says we're supposed to, people are supposed to work. Took the bait. He said, okay, if you want people to work, set up job training, job placement, mentorships. Get people to invest in new companies, create enterprise zones so that there are jobs in people's neighborhoods. Everything, or scratch that. Sometimes, at least in my communities, people say things without thinking about what they're saying about the totality of Scripture. See, I wonder when the ESV translated this fairness as opposed to equality. I mean, it'd be interesting to see, was that a linguistic thing or was that a political thing? The fairness makes it a little easier. Because if, if, if Paul is saying he's looking for equality out of our abundance... See, I don't know. Which, which would you rather be in God's economy? Would you be out of the person who, who needs the abundance of others to take care of yourself? Or would you rather have the responsibility of having the abundance to take care of the needs of others? <clears throat> you see, we need to raise our children. I used to be upset with my parents because they always seemed to say no to things I wanted. But looking back and learning how much they gave to foreign missionaries. How much I didn't need what I wanted. So he gives us these three stories, the Macedonians, these poor farmers who want to help these poor city people. Christ, and this is something that just should create you know, you look at all these words in here, joy, generosity, equality, grace, love. All those words are piled into this. And when we hear about Jesus who was rich, who became poor for our sakes, so that we might become rich. Doesn't that make you want to love Jesus? Doesn't it want to make you say that, look what he did for me, look what he gave up. In that song that we sang that was written by that missionary who took comfort in that, people were dying for the gospel. People were being impoverished for the gospel. See, it wasn't just the missionaries. It was the poor Chinese people, people that were cut off from jobs, people that were cut off from welfare. You think about all the things that they do to people who don't fall in line in authoritarian countries. How they cut off the care net. And so Christians become poor. 
So Christians around the world need to look beyond their own national borders and say, how can I in our abundance? You see, one of the things about Christianity and preaching and doing this is, I'm not here to give you a formula. I can tell you what the needs of the church are and things like that, what other things, you know, what cool needs, what they need in India, things like that. We can talk about that. But see, you're the only one who knows in your heart if you have an abundance to give. And remember those two words that Calvin used about the manna. Greed or distrust. Do you believe God will take care of you? That God will provide for you? Do you believe we have a responsibility for each other, as the passage says? See, the manna was free to all who gather it. We need to see all that we have as manna. Let us pray. Father, I pray that in our hearts we would just know how rich we are in Jesus. And in many cases, how much abundance we have to help us to share more. Not to distrust you, to realize that, yes, you're going to take care of us. Yes, I'm part of a Christian community that we need to take care of each other. That we need to take care of people beyond our own borders. Father, your gospel is bigger than we can ever imagine. We'll never completely understand what Jesus went through from his riches to his poverty. To come be like us so that he might save us from our sins. But Father, thank you for life. Thank you for work. Thank you for manna. In Jesus' name, amen.